0: All right, well, good morning. All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. If you don't have a Bible today, you're unfortunately out of luck because it's not going to be on the screen, right? So uh, pick one of the Bibles in front of the pew in front of you if there's one there and open it with me to that passage that Linda just read. It's in Luke chapter 15. And if you're new to the Bible, uh, Luke is toward the beginning of the New Testament. So you have Matthew, Mark, You'll find Luke and then John. So Luke's right there. You're looking for the big number, Luke chapter 15. And we're going to be in verses 1 through 10 today. We are coming to the very end of our sermon series that you can see on the banners called We Are Disciple Makers. And through the course of this sermon series, we have been trying to answer every question that you could ever have about Jesus' command that he gives to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28 where he says, go therefore and make disciples among the nations. We want to understand what that means and what it means for us today. Since this will be my last sermon on the topic, I want to do a quick recap of where we've been so that you have the big picture this morning as we we go into the conclusion of this series. Early on, we started with a very crucial question. We asked this, what is a disciple? If you remember, we looked at Jesus' calling of his first disciples where he said, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so he said this, a disciple is a forgiven sinner who is following Jesus, is being changed by Jesus, and is joined in the mission of Jesus. Friends, there is no greater question that you could answer this morning than that one. Am I truly a disciple? Am I really following Jesus? Am I being changed inwardly by Jesus? Am I joined in the mission of Jesus? That is a disciple. From there, we ask this question, why should we make disciples? Why does this even matter? Is this even important? Uh, Should we even really give our lives to this? And we said, yes, We each one of us should give our lives to this because as we saw in the book of Colossians, apart from knowing and being rescued by Jesus, every person in the world is in spiritual darkness. They are separated from God because of their sin. And therefore, disciple-making becomes the most important thing that we can do, helping them to also know Jesus. The question then became, what is disciple-making? What does this look like practically? And we gave this definition. If you're taking notes again, write this down. It's very important for this series. Disciple-making is the process of helping a person move one step closer to Jesus. Discipleship is the process of helping a person move one step closer to Jesus. For those that don't know Jesus, it's helping them to know who he is, what he's done for them so that they can be rescued by him. For those that do know Jesus, it's helping them to grow in intimacy and commitment and surrender to Jesus. One step at a time. It's not A to Z, it's A to B, then B to C, then C to D. One step at a time. We do this, we said, through the three Ps. Uh, We said prayerful dependence on the Spirit, right? Right? proclamation of the word perseverance this is the practical way that we make disciples we we pray for people we pray that God would work in us and through us we we ask that that he would change people's lives and then we proclaim the word we persevere we never give up church this work of disciple making is the calling of every Christian every disciple is a disciple maker There's not one of us that is exempt from Jesus' command to go and make disciples of all the nations. And so this happens everywhere. It starts in our homes, we talked about. It goes into our neighborhood. It goes into our schools and our workplaces and even to the ends of the earth. It happens everywhere. Finally, last week, we looked at this reality that that this is not something that we go out on our own as a lone ranger and just do it by ourselves. No, disciple-making is a team activity Which means this, you need other Christians around you. You need them encouraging you, constantly pushing you toward Jesus. And they need you to do the same in their lives. And so last week I left you with this challenge to think of at least three other believers that you would commit to spending a lot of time with in order to help them and them help you continue to move closer to Jesus. It's a team sport. All that to say, we have covered a lot in this sermon series. It's been the big picture of what it means to make disciples. So this morning, I want to end with something super simple. There's one question that I want ringing in your mind as you leave this Sunday, as you go into your week, whatever that week looks like for you. The question is this. Who is your one? Last week, we asked, who are your three? Who are those three other believers that can support you, can be part of being transparent and and pouring God's Word into one another? Today, I'm asking... Who is your one? From the very beginning, let me just tell you the challenge that I believe that this passage puts in front of each one of us today. I want to challenge you to think of one person in your life that does not know Jesus. And I want you to commit for the next year to praying daily for that person. Daily seeking opportunities to intentionally reach out to them with the good news of what Jesus has done for them. Daily. One person. Maybe it's a person at your work. Maybe for, you, for those of you who are students, it's another student at your, at your school. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a person at your gym. One person. The rationale behind this challenge is the biblical truth that we're going to see in this text that every single person that walks on this planet, every is both made in the image of God and made to have a relationship with Him. They're made to be worshipers of him. They're made to to have that connection with the living God who created them. But the flip side of that is that every single one of us has wandered from God, right? Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6 says it this way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We've rebelled against God. We've said, God, we know that, that you may be our creator, but we don't want to be accountable to you. We want to do our own thing. We want to live as if, we, as if there is no God. I want to be the God of my life. I want to be the king upon the throne of my own heart. Each one of us has done that. You would think that God would say, well, then good riddance, <laughs> creation. If you want to be separate from me, then I'll give you the destruction that you're asking for. But here's the beauty of the text that we're in today. Instead, we, we find that every single lost, wandering, rebellious person has value in the eyes of God. In fact, they are so valuable to him that he pursues them. And so that's what we're going to find in these two parables. Now, the context of these two parables that Jesus is going to give to us is is pretty important. By Luke chapter 15, Jesus had lots and lots of crowds that were were following him and listening to Jesus' teaching. Oftentimes in these crowds, there would be different groups that, that normally didn't associate with one another, and yet there they were at the feet of Jesus listening to him teach. At this particular time, we know that there were at least three groups around Jesus. Number one, his disciples. These are men and women who were following Jesus. Were they flawed? Yes. But they said, Jesus, we give you our lives. We want to follow you. We want your teaching. We want your life. And so they followed him. Another group we find in verse 1, if you'll look at it with me. Chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. You have this group, tax collectors and sinners. I think it's really impossible for us to feel what the original audience would have felt when this group was known as the tax collectors came up. I think sometimes when we think of tax collectors, we kind of equate them with with IRS agents today. And we think, well, yes, they may have gone out and uh, they were supposed to take $25 of taxes and they took $30. But it's not really that big of a deal. Friends, that wasn't the tax collector of their day. You have to remember that at this time, Jerusalem and all of these areas around Jerusalem were occupied by Rome. Now, sometimes I think we get the gladiator in our head. We think, well, Rome is pretty cool. (laughs) These people are pretty awesome. And yet, if you were occupied by Rome, let me just say this. That's not how you saw Rome. The way that the Romans occupied these territories was through brutality, through force, and through massive killings. They push down any oppression that would come their way in fact there are historical accounts of rome conquering a city and then taking 20,000 of the men women and children of that city stripping them naked and crucifying them along the road that enters into the city for about 40 miles everybody that was coming into that city or going out of the city that's a reminder don't mess with rome in order to keep all of these territories and under their control, they had to amass a massive army, right? How do you pay for a massive army? Taxes. What do you need to get taxes? Tax collectors. And so what the Roman government would do is they'd go to places like Jerusalem or Judea or all these areas and they'd, they'd go and they'd find some of the Jews in that area and they would bribe them. They'd say, hey, we want you to go and take advantage of your neighbors, and so they would go and they'd exhort excessive money from their neighbors to pay for the army that was oppressing their neighbors. To pay for the army that had killed many of their family members. That's the tax collector. And so when you hear this mentioned in the mind of the original audience, they thought the tax collectors were the scum of the earth. These betrayed, betrayed their own people. This other category known as sinners is is not kind of a general term like you and I use it. Yes, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we're all sinners. But in that day, when it talked about the sinners, it was talking about a specific group that was known to have jobs and lifestyles that were blatantly against God. And so with this group, tax collectors and sinners, these were individuals that were considered by many to be outside the realm of God's forgiveness. They were too far from God. They were too wicked. What they had done was too bad. And so they weren't invited to be part of the synagogue. They weren't invited to hear the scriptures read. They weren't invited to make sacrifices. They were too far gone in the perspective of that culture. And yet what does it say about these sinners and tax collectors? That they were drawing near to Jesus. There was something about Jesus That they didn't feel condemned, but instead they were being drawn to him. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. But finally, there's a third group, and that's the group that's in verse 2. They're known as the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, oftentimes, I think it's easy for the Pharisees to kind of get a bad rap, right? Uh, When we talk about the Pharisees, we kind of see them as this horrible group. but, But you have to understand, in that culture, if you had a spectrum of really, really good people and really, really bad people... Tax collectors and sinners, all the way over here. You want to know where the Pharisees were? All the way over here. These were the examples. These were the moral examples. And like in any day, there were many different religious groups. In every culture, there are religious tribes, right? There was no different in the New Testament. In the New Testament times, you had kind of four key tribes in, in this season. Number one, you had those who who used their religious means to gain political um, growth, right? To gain political power. We still have that in our day, right? These people were known as the the zealots. They were religious and political fanatics, and they were a well-known, established religious group in that day. On the opposite side, you had another group that that when it came to culture, they said, no, 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 culture's too bad. We're going to create our own community." We're going to be like a monastic-style community that that doesn't get near that wicked, evil world. That group was known as the Essenes, okay? That's a religious group. Third group you had was the Sadducees. The Sadducees were were kind of the, the political, intellectual elites of the religious community. Many of them had become theologically liberal, theologically off in order to fit in with the Roman culture. You see this in our day, right? Many Christians who who when it comes to the truth of God's word, they say that's not really important if it doesn't match up with culture. That was the Sadducees. And then finally you had the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the popular party of the middle class. Different from these other groups, they believed in the truth of the Bible. They taught the Bible. They sought to live the Bible. They weren't separatists like the Essenes. They weren't fanatics like the the Zealots. They weren't liberal like the Sadducees. This was the moral majority. Of their day, These were the good examples. These were our churchgoers of our day. And yet this moment reveals that these churchgoers, these religious moral people had a heart problem that was in direct opposition to God. And you see this heart problem revealed in verse 2. Look at it with me. It says in verse 2, They say this man receives sinners and eats with them. They're talking about Jesus. Now, Of course, you could read that statement as if they were saying, man, this Jesus, he welcomes sinners and tax collectors. They're near him. This is amazing. But of course, that's not what's happening here, is it? It says that they were grumbling. They were complaining. They didn't understand how could Jesus, a holy man, a holy teacher, associate with tax collectors and sinners. They're too far from God. Why would he spend almost the, the, the majority of his time eating with these people? They're sinners. They're going to make him turn into a sinner. Why, why would he do this? It's in the t- context of this question that Jesus tells these two unbelievable parables that reveal to us this morning God's heart for a sinner who has wandered far from him. The first principle that we're going to see this morning, if you're taking notes, is this. God values the one. God values the one. Jesus provides two common day pictures of of life to make his point clear. One involving a shepherd and one involving a woman in her home. Verse four says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? So that's the shepherd. Then you go to verse eight. What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Now, in both of these cases, there is one thing missing, right? One shepherd out of a hundred sheep, or one sheep out of a hundred sheep. One coin out of ten. It's easy to think, if that shepherd had one hundred sheep, what's the big deal? Why would you leave the ninety-nine to go after the one? If that woman had 10 coins, losing one coin in the house, what what's the big deal? It comes down to value. What do they value? A few years ago, I made a, a very tragic mistake as a dad, and that was this. I made the mistake of thinking that I could on my own take three kids to Dolores Park on a hot Saturday without my wife. Now, what made that decision a bad decision was not only the marijuana that was floating in the air. It wasn't just the the lack of clothing of people on Dolores Park on a hot Saturday. It was the unbelievable amount of other children at the Dolores Park playground. One moment I'm sitting there and I'm watching one of my kids go down the slide. If you've been to Dolores Park, there's this high slide that zigzags all the way down. I'm watching that happen and I look down. It couldn't have been more than five seconds I'm watching this. I look down, and I realize my youngest child is no longer next to me. I start looking around. I start going around and looking, and I don't see her. In this moment, I realize I have lost my youngest child. Now, I guess you could say this. You have to remember, we have three kids, okay? Three kids. This is my youngest. I guess you could say, and many in San Francisco already say, three is too many. I could have in that moment said, you know, two would be a lot easier, Less mouths to feed, more money for Rachel and I to do other things. Two is still good, and then go home. Did I do that? No. Of course not. I began to look. I began to search. I began to look in the slides and the swings and all the crevices of that playground until I see my kid who didn't even know she was lost. She's just wandering around, right? I pick her up, and I'm excited about it. Why would I go search for the one? Because each and every one of my kids was valuable. Each and every one of them matters to me. And that is the point here. Every sinner, no matter how far from God they may think they are, every sinner, no matter how far from God you may think they are, is valuable to God. He created them in his image to be made in relationship and connection with him. No matter how far they go, no matter what they've done, they are valuable. Notice this truth is a correction to both the Pharisees and the tax collector's view of God. The Pharisees were wrong in thinking that their own good works and religious activity made them more valuable than the person who is blatantly opposing God. That's what they assumed. We're righteous. We're doing all the right things. Surely God cares more about us than that sinner, that tax collector. God says, no. I leave the 99 to go after the one." It also corrects the tax collectors. They were wrong in thinking that they were too far removed from God that they could ever be forgiven. That they could ever draw close to him again. God values the one. He values the one in your workplace who constantly makes fun of Christianity. He values the one in your school who says that they are an atheist. He values the one on the street whose life has been totally captive to addiction. He values the the teenage boy that is impacted by a special need. He values the successful neighbor next door who seems to have it all together. He values that child in your family who is asking questions of faith. God values every person who is lost. And the greatest evidence of that is the next principle. And you see this in the text. Not only does God value the one, God comes after the one. He comes after them. He pursues them. It's amazing. You look at verse 4 and verse 8. And in both of these stories, finding the one becomes the ultimate priority of their life. Nothing else matters, right? They drop the 99 to go after the one. They forget about the other nine coins searching for the one. The shepherd immediately leaves them to go and seek the one who is lost. Jesus is saying, do you realize that this is what God has done for you? This is what God has done. From the moment humanity wandered into sin, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, from the moment humanity entered into sin and this world became broken, God put into action a plan to redeem and rescue humanity from their sin. This plan, of course, culminated in the life of Jesus, God incarnate, God in the flesh, who came and died for us and was resurrected so that we could be reconnected to God. This is an amazing plan. This picture of a shepherd saving the sheep really brings it home, too. Uh, Many times we've talked about this, but I think we have a very city perspective of sheep. We see them as these cute, cuddly animals that that we can put on Instagram photos with a really nice quote about peace, and and that's what we see as a sheep. That wasn't the case, and that's not the picture Jesus is painting. I want you to listen to the words of a pastor who, before he became a pastor, actually was a a full-time shepherd. He said this word. He said... I want you to hear it. He says, a sheep is a stupid animal. Let's just get to it. Isn't it. You thought it was really cute when God was kind of comparing us to sheep. No. A sheep is a stupid animal. It loses its directions continually a way a cat or a dog never does. Even when you find a lost sheep, the lost sheep rushes to and fro and will not follow you home. So when you find it, you must seize it throw it to the ground, tie its forelegs and hind legs together, put it over your shoulders, and carry it home. That is the only way to save a lost sheep. The point that he is making is that a sheep doesn't stand a chance of surviving on its own. A sheep cannot rescue itself. It needs the shepherd to rescue them from start to finish. It's not like a dog. If you find your missing dog and you say, hey, there you are, let's go home. What's the dog going to do? He's going to dart in front of you and he's going to go home. A sheep, that's not going to happen. He says the shepherd has to pick it up and put it on its shoulders and take it all the way home. Friends, do you realize this is our salvation? We're sheep. We've wandered from God. We've rebelled against him. But what has God done for us? He's come for us. He's done everything necessary to save us and to bring us home with him. He died on the cross for our sins, taking the punishment that we deserved. We deserve that punishment, but he took it on our behalf. He was risen from the dead, defeating our greatest enemies of death and sin so that we could have life, so that we could be taken home to himself. 2 Timothy chapter 2 says that he desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Regardless of how far somebody has gone, what does it say? God pursues them. He sacrifices His own life to pursue the sheep who are lost. My question to you this morning is this what about you? As we've said many times in this sermon series, you cannot save anyone. You can't rescue them from their sin. You can't take them out of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of Jesus. But what does the Bible say you can do? You can pray fervently for them. You can proclaim the good news of the gospel so that they can know who Jesus is and you can persevere. Friend, I'm going to ask you a question this morning. And I'm not asking. I promise my purpose in asking this question is not to give you a guilt trip. It's not to make you feel bad. I want you to do an honest assessment of your life. Can you name one person that has come to Christ your own personal invitation or witness. Can you name one person? One. If your answer is yes, praise God. Who's the next one? Who's the next one? Who's the next one? If your answer is Ryan, no. I have to ask, what's holding you back? I think many of us allow fears and insecurities to keep us from proclaiming who Jesus is, to keep us from praying we're fearful, we're timid. Look at the example of this woman in the parable. Nothing was going to keep her from finding that coin. She is searching the house. She's sweeping the house. She doesn't go to sleep. She says, whatever it takes, I will lay it down in order to help find that missing coin. How many of us need to have the same mentality when it comes to those who are lost in their sin? They're wandering from God. They're looking for satisfaction. They're looking for security. They're looking for meaning in places that are not going to do it. They're not going to give them what they're looking for. How many of us need to have a whatever it takes mentality? I can think of many people in my own life who I need to have more of a mentality like this where I would say this, I won't stop praying. I won't stop speaking. I won't stop being intentional until this person knows about Jesus Christ. Who's your one? Who's one person that God is calling you to do whatever it takes? Finally, we get to this last point, and that is this. God rejoices over the one. Not only does he value the one, not only does he go and pursue the one and bring them home, he rejoices over the one. Verse 6 says, And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Then look with me down in verse 9. It says, And when she found it, talking about the woman, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents." As I was reading this, I was kind of taken back. You you realize what Jesus is saying here? It's pretty amazing that Jesus could very casually say, uh, listen, I come from heaven. I know how it works up there. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Uh, There's many people that speculate, what is heaven going to be like? Is it going to be like this or is it going to be like that? Friends, here's one thing I know. I trust what Jesus says about heaven. And what Jesus says about heaven at the very least is this. Heaven is a community that celebrates sinners saved by grace. Heaven is a community that celebrates continually sinners that are saved by grace. It does not celebrate a bunch of righteous good people who do not repent. It celebrates sinners saved by grace. Which means this. The moment you stop trying to earn your salvation... The moment you became broken over your sin and you said, I'm going to repent, which means I'm going to turn. I'm going to turn from my sin and I'm going to give my life to Jesus. I'm going to trust in what he has accomplished on the cross for me. The moment that happened, a party broke out in heaven. A massive celebration. He says the angels surrounding the throne of God partied. Now, I don't know what that's like. The closest thing that I can think of Uh, came, uh, what, about nine years ago when I was at a World Series game when the Giants were trying to win their first World Series. I was surrounded by people that I did not know, strangers, and yet when that final out was done, I will tell you this, it was like we had won the World Series all together, right? I'm hugging people, my hands are in the air, we're giving high fives, joy unending in in that stadium as they won one of the games in the World Series. Jesus says, I want you to take the greatest joy that you know, the greatest party that you've ever been to, the most happy you've ever been, multiply that by about a million, that's the party in heaven over one sinner who repents. There's an unbelievable joy, unending joy. I love when people, one of my favorite things in this church, I'll just tell you this, Almost all the baptisms that we've done the last year, almost all the baptisms we have coming up over the next few weeks are because one person prayed for and spoke the gospel to another person. It didn't happen because of my sermons. It didn't happen because of somebody getting a leaflet on the side of the street. It was one person praying for and diligently speaking, diligently leading that person to faith. And I'll say this. You would think that the most joyful person on the day of baptism would be the person in the waters. It's not. I get the privilege of looking out, and I will tell you there is no greater joy than the person who got to be part of that process of leading that person to Jesus Christ. Unbelievable joy. Twice in this passage, he mentions friends and neighbors that are invited over to share in the joy of the one who, the shepherd who finds the sheep, the woman who finds the coin. Do you realize that's us? Jesus has invited you. Some of you say, Ryan, I don't have joy. I don't struggle with joy. This Christian concept of joy. Friend, are you part of the work that Jesus is doing? Because what he says here is they are invited to celebrate. They are invited into the joy of the shepherd that has found the lost sheep. This invitation for us to make disciples of the nations is an invitation to joy. It's an unbelievable invitation to unending joy as we see people come to know Jesus Christ. It's unbelievable. The point of these two parables is unmistakably clear. As disciples of Jesus who have been rescued from the darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, we are to be a community that values, searches for, and rejoices over a sinner who repents. That's who we are, church. We're a community that rejoices and values and searches for sinners who, just like us, were far from God and need to be brought home. We are called to be fishers and not Pharisees. Pharisees are caught up with their own religious games. They're caught up in their own personal agendas. They're caught up in their own pride. Fishers, they go fish. Many years ago, Darrell Robinson wrote a book called People Sharing Jesus, In this book, he shared a story that that very much woke me up. And I want to close my sermon today just by reading this story to you. It goes like this. Now, it came to pass that a group existed who called themselves fishermen. There were many fish in the waters all around. And in fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams and lake with fish who were hungry. Week after week, month after month, and year after year, those who called themselves fishermen talked about their call to fish, the abundance of fish in the streams, and how they might go about the task of fishing. Year after year, they carefully defined what fishing means and declared that fishing is always to be the primary task of a fisherman. Continually, they searched for new and better methods of fishing. They thought of witty slogans and displayed them on big, beautiful banners like the ones we have in this room. They built large auditoriums called fishing headquarters. And there they encouraged every fisherman to fish. But the one thing that they did not do, they did not fish. After some time of meeting regularly, they organized a board to send out fishermen to other places around the world where there were many other hungry fish. They hired staff and appointed committees and held meetings to decide what new streams should be considered for the future of fishing. Some became students of fishing and had doctorates in fishology. But even the teachers of these schools did not fish. They all engaged in other occupations. Some felt their job was to relate to the fish in a good way so that the fish would know the difference between a good and a bad fisherman. Others felt that simply letting the fish know that they were nice, land-loving neighbors and showing them love and kindness was surely enough. Now, it's true that many of these fishermen sacrificed. They put up with all kinds of difficulties, and some lived near the water and bore the smell of dead fish every single day. They received the ridicule of some who made fun of their fisherman club and the fact that they claimed to be fishermen, and yet again, they never fished. Imagine how hurt some were when one day a person suggested that those who don't fish were not fishermen at all. No matter how much they claimed to me to be, they had to admit it did sound correct. If a person year after year never fishes, is he really a fisherman? More plainly stated, is one really following Jesus if he never fishes? Church family, it is time for us to stop talking about fishing. This whole series has been about fishing. It's time to start casting our net. It's time to start actually fishing. And that journey today begins with one. Who is your one? Who is the one person that you want to see God move in their life in a radical way? Who is the one person that God has put on your heart and mind that you are in their life to help them take a step toward him. Would you this morning commit for the next year to praying daily for your one? Would you commit to intentionally seek out opportunities to share the gospel with your one? Maybe it's to invite to church your one. I want us to close by reading together this declaration and prayer that we started this sermon series with. If you grab your song sheet That declaration is at the the very front of that song sheet. It's the very first thing that you should see. If you don't have it, it's okay. But for those of you that do have it, I want us to read this declaration together. It's the declaration of this sermon series. So if you would, let's read it. I was made for more than watching. I have a difference-making, life-giving, Spirit-empowered legacy to leave as I proactively help people take one step closer to Jesus. Heavenly Father, I ask you to work deeply in me and clearly through me as I pray, proclaim, and persevere in your love. I am a disciple-maker. We're going to close in a time of prayer. And so if you would, would you close your eyes, bow your heads? The reason we do that is to limit distractions in this moment. We want you to have a time this morning where you hear the voice of God in your life. We're surrounded by noise all day, every day. This is a moment for you to hear from God. Perhaps today you are here and you are the one that God is pursuing today. You're the one who is in your sin. You've never been rescued. You've never been forgiven. You've never been brought home by Jesus, reconnected in your relationship with him. You need to know today that God has never stopped loving you. He's never stopped pursuing you. He has died for you. And today he offers you life, eternal life, now and forever. Relationship with him. Today, would you consider repenting of your sin, turning from your sin and putting your trust in Jesus, giving Jesus your life, submitting to every area to him? If you do so, I'm just telling you today, it's promised here, there is a party that will break out in heaven over you coming to know him. So today, if that's you, I would just simply ask this, that you would Just ask, do a simple prayer. Jesus, I need you to rescue me. Jesus, I need to be forgiven of my sin and rebellion towards you. I know I can't earn that. I know I don't deserve that, but Jesus, will you forgive me? I'm turning from my sin and I'm putting my trust in you. I want you to be the Lord, which just means boss. I want you to be the the king of my life. You run my life. And not me. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for rescuing me. For loving me. For valuing me. Save me today. Friend if that's you. After the service. I want to know you're here. Would you come and find me. Say Ryan. I came to know Christ today. I want to be in relationship with him. If not me, tell your neighbor who's here in this building, tell one of our other staff members, but make sure you don't leave this place. You can write it on one of those communication cards, whatever you want to do, but we want to know that you're here and that you came to know Christ this morning. If you already know Jesus this morning, this is a time for you to be honest with God. What are the fears and insecurities that are keeping you from fishing, from being a disciple maker? Who is your one that you need to start praying for today? Maybe just take a moment, take out that, that thing in your bulletin, that, that slip of paper, and just write a prayer for your one today. Who's the one person that God's put on your mind? Let's take some time and pray. I'll close this in just a moment.